The following Pharma Essentia podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and cannot be considered as medical advice. Please speak to a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Hi, Kay. Hi, Josh. You know how back in the day you had to watch TV on a schedule? I sure do. And if you missed an episode or too much time had passed since a certain thing happened, you'd get a mid-season recap episode? I'm starting to catch on. Guess what? We learned a ton of information over the past few episodes, so you've come up with the bright idea to do a filler episode. Recap episode. Recap episode to help our listeners solidify what they've learned. You win a lot of games, don't you? I am a good guesser. Today, we're doing exactly that on the PV Pod. Stories from the Marrow, brought to you by Pharma Essentia. Hey, thanks, Pharma Essentia. I'm honestly shocked at how much we've learned so far. It really has been a tremendous few months. When we started, you could barely pronounce any of the words. And now listen to me. I can fire off polycythemia vera and myeloproliferative neoplasm in my sleep. Done in. Bunks. <laughs> but can you define them? Could you imagine if I couldn't by now? Polycythemia vera, or PV for short, is a specific kind of cancer called a myeloproliferative neoplasm, which causes the bone marrow to produce too many red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And Josh, why is that a problem? Kay, I'm going to tell you right now. It's because with all of this overproduction, it makes the blood kind of thick, like a syrup, which can cause blood clots, which can lead to strokes, heart attack, or pulmonary embolisms. Well, I don't want to make this one big quiz. Thank goodness. So I think we should hear from Dr. Bose, who helped us with our 101 in the first episode to revisit why this overproduction of blood cells is happening in the first place. Essentially, the marrow is in overdrive because there is this constitutively active kinase. So kinase is an enzyme. This genus kinase is a very ubiquitous enzyme with a particularly important role in blood cell production. So think of it as being overactive and just going, going, going. Oh, like the bunny. I don't think that's a relevant cultural reference anymore. Whatever. The cells are being overproduced continuously because of that. And what you see in the bone marrow is that you see a hypercellular bone marrow. So the number of cells as opposed to fatty tissue, etc., is increased. So you have a relative excess of the cells over the stromal fatty tissue, etc. So you see all these classic signs to varying degrees. You can see a little bit of marrow scarring or fibrosis as well. And that leads to not only high blood counts, but also a variety of symptoms. These patients can have a large spleen, they can have discomfort from that, and then they can have a whole slew of symptoms like itching classically after a hot shower, night sweats. There's a whole plethora of MPN symptoms that you can see. So it's a genetic mutation that impacts blood cell production. Exactly. And why does someone get PV? Is it inherited? It is generally a spontaneous mutation. It has recently been learned that this mutation can be acquired very early in life, even in utero. Which means before birth. So even before birth, and certainly in childhood, it can be acquired and then take decades until the disease manifests. I'm still wondering, can it be inherited? So what can happen is, 
not that the mutation per se is inherited, but that people can inherit a tendency to acquire the mutation. There's a lot of work going on in this area, and we're learning more and more genetic susceptibilities to develop the mutation and then go on to develop an MPN. But most of the time it's acquired, and like I said, it can be acquired much earlier than the disease itself shows up. So you're not inheriting polycythemia vera directly, but if one of your parents has it, you might have a genetic disposition towards experiencing the genetic mutation, which then leads to PV. Even though it's technical, I feel like hearing all of this is really jogging my memory. Right. The idea of the JAK2 enzyme being a really important and really present enzyme in the blood, it makes sense that when it goes into overproduction, that things can kind of escalate quickly. Right. And I think it's so important to know that just because a parent has PV doesn't necessarily mean that a child will end up with a myeloproliferative neoplasm. You're likely to be more susceptible to it, but there are still other contributing factors that could change the child's ultimate outcome. Right. And do you remember what was said about it being the good kind of cancer? Well, yeah. And, I mean, it's kind of understandable why people say that, because the median survival of a person with PV has been reported to be somewhere between 14 to 19 years, and in some cases longer than that, which, when compared to certain other cancers, can look a little ideal. But the phrase, the good kind of cancer, is really insensitive to the person living with PV because it dismisses the symptoms and life experiences they're having, and it diminishes the severity of those blood clots we talked about, which can be a really big deal. Look at you. You've got 101 covered. You are a polycythemia vera magna cum laude. Where's my diploma? (laughs) So there are a few more things that we're missing from the 101 crash course before we move on to patient and caregiver stories. The first are the symptoms. Fatigue is the biggest one. They could have itching. I mentioned this earlier, particularly after a hot shower. They could have night sweats, weight loss, bone pain. A whole variety of symptoms can accompany this diagnosis as well. Some of the symptoms of PV, as well as of other MPNs, can be quite uh, varied, diverse, so that patients may not make the connection between their diagnosis and the symptoms trouble concentrating, insomnia, sexual problems, this sort of stuff, patients may not necessarily relate it to their PV. So the data is a little bit heterogeneous and hard to compare study to study. But I think what's important to note is that, yes, it's a chronic disease. Yes, you live many years with it, but it does transform. It does progress. It can cause clots, which can be life-threatening. And the last big thing to touch on is treatment. Which essentially boils down to trying to bring the level of all of your blood cell types back to normal levels to reduce the risk of clots. But treatment may look different between high-risk and low-risk patients. High-risk being a person with a blood clot or a thrombosis and or a person over 60 years old. And low-risk being a person younger than 60 with no blood clots or thrombosis. When I use the term risk, I'm talking about risk for thrombosis. I'm not meaning risk of death or risk of really anything else. We're talking about thrombosis. The immediate goal, short-term goal, is to minimize that risk of clotting. And I have to say that most of the drugs we have today, that is really what they do best. We don't, let's say, in a conclusive manner, have a lot of evidence that we are able to 
reduce the progression to myelofibrosis or transformation to AML. That would be wonderful and there is work in that direction and some encouraging signs. But today I would say that our therapies are predominantly directed at reducing the risk of clotting or thrombosis rather than uh, preventing those long-term outcomes. That's not to separate the two. It is certainly possible that one drug may do both. But I'm just trying to say that the evidence we have is much stronger in terms of controlling blood counts and therefore reducing the risk of thrombosis. So that's our quick PV 101 recap. And we'll be revisiting our patient and caregiver conversations after this quick message from our sponsor. Stick around. So you're learning about PV on the PV Pod Stories from the Marrow. Now get ready to take the next steps on your PV journey with What's Next PV, an educational site on polycythemia vera. Knowing what's next can help inform the decisions you and your doctor make about the future and is important to your health. What's Next PV can help you understand test results, set goals for the management of your PV, and make a plan to advocate for yourself. Check out www.pvbonemarrow.com to learn more. Moving into our conversation with Nick, I want to reiterate that we're doing some recapping today, and these are just highlights. Right. While we're focusing on our key learning points today, those previous episodes have so many nuances and details that are essential to understanding their stories. So if you're a new listener and you like what you hear, we highly recommend going back because there are some awesome conversations that offer a lot of insight into what it's like to being diagnosed and to live with PV. Now getting back to Nick, a 44-year-old family man who was diagnosed with PV after a normal annual physical back in 2016, just days after discovering his wife was pregnant with their second son. What a week. So we basically ran through the gamut of emotions that week. It was heartbreak. It was disappointing. I was actually seeing the hematologist, oncologist in the same cubicle as we would go see the gynecologist. It was just very surreal knowing that I'm looking across and knowing that I'll be here often over the next nine months, God willing, but also the other end of it, going in to see the hematologist oncologist to talk about the blood cancer that I have. And then your mind skips ahead and what's to come and, and you're not educated at that point. So you immediately go to the dark place, which is where I went to immediately went to how long am I going to live thinking that I didn't have much time left and just playing life's memories right skipping ahead to graduations and weddings and um, just all the life's moments and I was absent from those life's moments and so that really took a toll on me I would say in that first year especially. When suddenly presented with a physical health challenge, it can be easy to overlook the mental health strain that comes along with it. Especially when the delivery of that first diagnosis is vague. You know, it was delivered to me in a very nondescript way. You have this JAK2 mutation, but thankfully you don't have leukemia. I'd like to do a phlebotomy today. That was it. And so I didn't really hear anything past. You have polycythemia vera, right? Like my mind went blank and I don't remember much from that. I do remember leaving, saying I need more time, leaving and, and walking to my car. I just started to Google stuff. 
Knowing what I know now, right, that this is a long-term journey, stating that up front, this is something that you could live long-term. Everybody is different, but you can live long-term with this. There's more options now than there were five or six years ago, but there were still options back then. Here's some support and resources that you can go to get trusted information. Because as you know, once you start Googling, you go down a rabbit hole, you find all sorts of information and you don't know what to trust. So hitting that up front may have, may not have prevented sort of the, the mental health spiral that I went down and thinking about all these life moments and me not being there. Nick mentioned after this that looking back, he realizes that a lot of the symptoms associated with PV were symptoms that he had, but just associated with everyday life. The itchiness after showers, the fatigue, blurry vision, headaches, spacing out, not being able to hold conversations at times. A lot of these could be associated with stress or burnout or the time of the year or lack of sleep. Which makes sense why the first time Nick found out about his diagnosis was through blood work. And while that first interaction was not an ideal example of receiving a diagnosis, his doctor really took the time to answer his questions and explain all of the options available. And now, as Nick puts it... I'm in a really good place. There are so many options now. I'm getting help from a mental health standpoint. I have really great doctors that are talking through options with me, and I'm a, on a really great FDA-approved drug that I'm doing well on. And so... The point of that is just be proactive about your care because there are options. Don't put yourself in a bubble that this is what I have to do. There are a lot of options out there. The best thing I ever did was share my story and get involved in the cause. And I know that it's different for everybody, but I really struggled with this mentally in that first year. I internalized everything. And to get it out in the open and just talk about it, and I don't think my story is any great story versus someone else, but the act of getting it out of my brain and out in the open. And then the support that I received in telling the story was healing. That's not to be too dramatic about it, but it was very healing to me. And I loved how that felt. Nick chose a creative medium to communicate what he was diagnosed with and how it was affecting him. He made a documentary because that was what felt right for him and he had the tools to do it. But it was the simple act of getting that story out and communicating with his friends and family that made it so impactful. Yeah, this was really our big takeaway from our conversation with Nick, that trusting in your community and learning to share your thoughts and feelings are essential to building the support system that will help you on your journey with PV. Yes, it helps me, but then you quickly realize that it's about other people as well, and you just want to help other people and have them, if they're struggling with the mental health aspect of this, know that there's help and there's a community out there. And I know some people aren't comfortable and I wasn't very comfortable, but to think I could have had that from the start, it was eye-opening to me where I just gained a whole new support system. Other people, community, support system. I think I know what I want to ask about next. What's a support system look like? Yeah. It's on multiple different fronts. It's, it's family, it's friends. I've been very fortunate enough to make connections through the stuff that I've done in the MPN community, doctors and patients. I have a network of about three or four patients that I text with regularly. It's been invaluable to share experiences. And that's also part of the awareness part because we are a rare disease and the community is small but growing. And so the more that we can get out there and share experiences, the better that we are. Nick had a lot more to say, which you can hear in episode two. But as we progress on our own journey today, we have to consider the role of the caregiver as well. Ooh, Joe and Patty. Nick was a low-risk patient because at the time of his story, he was less than 60 years old and had no blood clots. Patty, on the other hand, gave us the perspective of a high-risk patient because, well, I'll let her tell you. 
I'm Patty Monteleone, and I just turned 60 last week, and I have polycythemia vera. And I am Joe Monteleone. I just turned 62. I am the husband of Patty and caregiver of Patty. Patty and Joe had a similar diagnosis story that they tell in their episode, but it's how they tackled the challenges after diagnosis as a couple that we want to focus on today. First, it was the sit down and looking at each other's eyes and, and explaining what that meant. And, you know, you have the tears and the cries and the embraces. And then how are we going to explain this to our children and how are they going to take it? They're both healthcare professionals and way more experienced in some of this than we are and probably hear this more often than we do about people with disease. But, you know, when it hits home to their mom, it's different. How are we going to communicate that? It's just to sit down in, in a direct communication of being honest and sincere. At no fault of regular hematologists, oncologists, they don't see MPNs very regularly or often. So I liked my local hematologist very much, but I felt it was clear that he didn't know the disease as well as when I went to Sloan and I met with the director of MPNs at Memorial Sloan Kettering. The first doctor was lovely. He was very knowledgeable for what he did. But like Patty said, we knew quickly that we needed to go and get a specialist. This is something that's difficult, but it's important to mention. As a patient or caregiver, you may sometimes find yourself needing a second opinion or a specialist that can take care of your specific needs. And that's not to discredit your general practitioner. Of course not. Your healthcare experience is a collaborative one, and you have the option of seeking the opinions and care of a specialist if you feel that's right for you. And what's always important to hear, especially for people who suffer with social anxiety like I do, that your doctor is there to work with you. They are your teammate and want what's best for you. So no need to feel guilty about any of this. You are absolutely allowed to find a doctor that's a good fit for you and your condition. We talk about that all the time in our other work with patients who have rare diseases. All right, back to Patty and Joe. We're fortunate enough to be pretty close to New York City. And a pretty well-renowned research facility is where we went. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Morrow. I find him to be incredibly bright and engaging and empathic and very thorough. That specialist, he was, like Patty said, very pragmatic, very open. You know, let us record the sessions that we had so that we didn't want to miss anything. He asked many questions of us and, and how we felt. I really love this idea of keeping track of important conversations through recording, of taking time to go back through and truly listening once those initial emotions have had a chance to level out. As a caregiver, if you're attending these appointments with your loved one who's a patient, this could be something you do to support them. Of course, please ask your doctor for permission to record the conversation first. Do Patty and Joe go to all of their appointments together? In the beginning, we went to all of them together. But now I think we are able to, I'll do it on my own and record them or whatever. And if, I would imagine, and I'm stable, so there's not, we're not, not anticipating anything. But if there were anything, any changes, we would do it together. And once things started to fall into place, once Patty was stable, what was life like after that? I think for me, the disease is just so full of uncertainties. You know, it became very clear of getting comfortable with as if, Anyone can be all that comfortable with uncertainty, but recognizing that this is going to be a bit of an uncertain path and we have to just let it play out and see how things go. Yeah, what I became aware of was the unknowns. There was a, a road of unknowns 
uh, to be concerned about. And what would the treatment look like? It was almost like you were like a Petri dish of different things. Let's try this or try that. So it was those kinds of unknowns. It's almost things that can't be made clear. Like you just don't know how your course is going to progress. Some people can live for decades and some people might have an event and could shorten their lifespan. So that's the kind of the uncertainty in there. So you have to just do everything you can do to be as healthy as you can to not contribute to your risk of some type of thrombotic event. I think I also immediately realized how important my cardiac health was. So that was the other thing that I really focused on is making sure that my cardiac health was as pristine as it could be. Diet and exercise and cholesterol and blood pressure and all that stuff, making sure all that was supportive of a healthier journey with PV and not contributing to a potential event. So I think it just the idea of being a patient became clear like, oh, wow, I'm a patient now, which no one really wants to graduate to that. <laughs> but that's some of the things that I became acutely aware of. And you just, and then you're still dealing with the kind of the shock of having this chronic illness that you're trying to learn about and understand and that you're a cancer patient. And that in and of itself takes time just to put your head around that I used to think about, oh God, we've got this coming up and my numbers are this, I'm not going to feel well and trying to figure out how to get what I needed so I could feel better before any particular event. But that really is not the case. My numbers are really pretty stable now. And I feel pretty good now. Just like Nick and Dr. Bose, there was a lot more to their episode. But now that we know the 101 and have a firm grasp on the experiences of a low-risk patient, a high-risk patient, and a caregiver, and have a good understanding of the power of communication within your community, as well as with your care team, it's time to revisit David Wallace, the creator of a truly incredible online resource. And CFO of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Wrong David Wallace. You sure about that? That one is fictional, and our David Wallace is very real and very cool. He is. My name is David Wallace, and I'm the publisher of PV Reporter and uh, a patient leader in the NPN community. So David was diagnosed with PV in 2009. I got the runaround from my local doctor. They didn't really understand what to do. They waited a couple days, and they did not refer me to a hematologist. And so when I called them back after the second day, I said, you know what, I'm going to take the ball into my own hands. And I started calling hematologists right away that I pulled up on the internet in my local city. And I did it with an urgency that, hey, here's my illness and I feel terrible. Can I come in and see you tomorrow? And finally, I was able to get an appointment the very next day. And that kind of started my journey with getting treatment getting a phlebotomy right there in the office and releasing a little bit of that stress of, oh my God, I'm going to die, that sort of thing. So David gets his diagnosis and he immediately starts advocating for himself and for his treatment plan. Does that mean he didn't really experience that initial mental health crisis after his diagnosis that we've heard from so many other patients? Unfortunately, he did. But David wants us to know that's normal. It's normal to be depressed. It's normal to be angry about the situation. To me, I think seeking help is very important. And as I've lived with PV for many years, I now suggest to new patients that I'm 
talking to, to look at the journey from the long haul, almost like a pilot looking down on the earth below, try not to live in the moment, but realize that if you're just diagnosed, it's difficult, but things can get better once you get started on the right treatment plan and and try to look at the bigger picture and a brighter future can very well be ahead. Another big part of reaching that mental health stability for David was leaning on social media to connect him to other people and to experts in the MPN community. MPN being the abbreviation for myeloproliferative neoplasm. Which is what led him to his groundbreaking project, The PV Reporter. I was asked to write and research for an article for another NPN website, and it was very well received. And so I suggested we cover other topics, and it fell on deaf ears. And then the publisher asked me if I would help him to tag articles on his website manually. And I told him, I said, I think I can do it with software. And over the weekend, I created NPN Search, which automatically indexed his entire website. You could type in a search term and bring up articles specifically from trusted NPN sources, unlike a typical Google search. And this resource and my desire to cover NPN stories became the motivation for me to give back to the community who had really helped me so much early on. And I decided to create PV Reporter as a kind of a patient-focused resource hub. So PV Reporter is focused on researching PV and is expanding into including other myeloproliferative neoplasms as well. It's a resource hub that works as a good starting point for individual research. It's like a search engine specific to polycythemia vera, and it links you to reliable resources, specialists, support groups, and more. That's fantastic. It is. David is doing really great work in patient advocacy. A patient advocate is someone who supports patients and their loved ones as they navigate the healthcare system through communication, education, and awareness building. I'm a big fan of that. And how have patient advocates like David changed things for people with PV? So I think that the advocacy groups have really worked hard to raise awareness about PV. So first of all, there are way more resources and advocacy groups today than when I was first diagnosed about 14 years ago. We've developed educational materials and resources to help uh, patients, caregivers, as well as healthcare professionals to better understand the disease. There are also support networks that have been established both online and offline. And these networks really help provide emotional support. They allow patients to share experiences and offer practical advice to the folks that are living with PV. And then social media has quite a few groups that are dedicated for PV patients. And by creating the PV Reporter, David developed a hub of patient advocacy resources. And it's constantly evolving. So I do social listening through various online forums, as well as the messages that I receive on a regular basis from fellow patients. Naturally, I follow the latest research news and reports. So I decide what to publish 
really based on what's hot or top of mind. I'm big on sharing new information on our social media channels and via our newsletters to help provide talking points for patients with their healthcare team with the ultimate goal of improving quality of life. When I publish a new article, I get on social media to make sure that patients are aware of our new interview and our new resources that are available to them. What a fantastic resource. And he can use this platform to address common misconceptions about PV as well. First and most frequently, I hear that PV is a blood disorder and not a blood cancer or really a serious condition. So another one is PV is a disease that primarily affects the elderly. And we know that it can strike people at any age. You can hear much more about what David has been working on and hear the specifics of his diagnosis story in his episode. But it's time to get on to the final chapter of this recap episode. It's time to talk to a clinician. Dun, dun, dun. Come on now. I'm joking. Think about how much you've learned and then relearned. No, no. I legitimately really, really like Dr. Gerds and, and really everybody we've had on the show. And? And clinicians can be really incredible parts of your health journey, especially ones that are on the forefront of research like Dr. Gerds. So no more dun-dun-dun. We'll keep it, but we're going to change it to dun-da-da. That's better. Here's Dr. Gerds. Dun-da-da. My name is Aaron Gerds. I'm an associate professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Tazig Cancer Institute, where I also serve as the deputy director for clinical research. I'm also the medical director for the clinical research office of the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center. It's incredibly important to treat polycythemia vera, namely because there are lots of complications that can happen as a result of the disease. We do think of it as a chronic disease, meaning that people can live many years even without treatment, but that's uh, certainly not maximizing the quality and quantity of life that is potential with polycythemia vera. And certainly uh, diagnosing it or finding it out uh, getting the correct label on it, understanding the risk, and then applying the right treatment is critically important. Maximizing the quality and quantity of life. That is my new mantra, my resolution, if you will. That's a good goal for anyone, especially when discovering a new diagnosis for something like polycythemia vera. Which actually leads me to my next question. Funny enough, if it's possible to live many years without treatment, how soon after diagnosis should a person look to start their treatment? Well, certainly not an emergency. We don't have to rush people into the hospital to start treatment right away, but we do want to take care of it quickly. Most serious events that we see happen with polycythemia vera, namely blood clots, happen within the first three years of diagnosis. So putting it off for several months to a year is probably not the best plan. So we definitely want to make the diagnosis and then start in right away with treatment. More importantly, most people are symptomatic, or a lot of people are quite symptomatic with the disease. And so obviously, Getting the disease under better control can lead to people feeling better. And we would want to do that as quickly as possible as well. We talked to Dr. Gerds about goal setting, and we started with the goals on the clinician side. Yes, and a lot of what he said reinforced what Dr. Bose said in the first episode about treating the symptoms of PV and focusing on reducing the risk of blood clots. He also mentioned watching out for medications that could have the adverse effect and increase the risk of clots. What goes hand in hand with those avoiding the consequences of the disease is treating the symptoms that might be associated with polycythemia vera, such as night sweats, weight loss, fevers, itchy skin, abdominal discomfort, and enlarged spleen. All those things need to be addressed as well. 
in addition to trying to avoid the complications or reduce the risk of the complications of the disease. So it's not just about treating the cancer itself. Treating the symptoms that come along with polycythemia vera is just as important. There are a couple unmutable truths, as we say, in polycythemia vera. One is keeping the hematocrit under 45%, and that's something that comes up over and over again. It's been well-established as a treatment goal in terms of a goal to minimize complications of the disease, namely blood clots and blood clot-associated death. And that's all based on this trial that was done a while ago called the CytoPV trial, where half the patients in the trial had their hematocrit under 45%, and the other half had their hematocrit from 45 to 50%. And by keeping that hematocrit under tighter control, we saw that the risk of blood clots and blood clots associated death was cut in about half compared to the other group. So a really important thing that we can do to help minimize those complications. Wow, just a difference of 5% when it comes to hematocrit levels can make a tremendous difference. Are there any other similarities when it comes to treating all people with PV? The other kind of truth, if you will, in polycythemia vera as we know it today, it comes from this other study called the ECLAP study where Half the patients got low-dose daily aspirin, and the other half didn't, and aspirin reduced the risk of blood clots and blood clots-associated death. So really, that's the starting point of coming up with a treatment plan for anyone with polycythemia vera, is how can we best keep the hematocrit under 45% for that individual, and then the use of a low-dose daily aspirin, and whether that might be applicable for that individual. And then from there, we can start to figure out the different ways to keep the hematocrit under 45%, whether we're talking about phlebotomies or a medication. Dr. Gertz went on to emphasize that setting your goals as a patient should be based on shared decision-making. But he also emphasized the importance of setting boundaries. Right. He said to be straightforward about your goals and to set boundaries, saying, this is what I'm looking to get out of my treatment, and these are the risks that I'm willing to take to get there. And the risks I'm not willing to take. Exactly. Which brought us to asking about what to do when the communication with your clinician isn't going well or doesn't feel like a good fit. I think one of the things that patients sometimes don't know about or may struggle with is second opinions. Polycythemia vera is not terribly common. It's not like diabetes or hypertension, high blood pressure, things that are very common in the medical world. In fact, if you take all the myeloproliferative neoplasms, PV, ET, myelofibrosis, put them all together, there's about 300,000 people in this country living with those diseases. It's classified technically as a rare disease by the NIH. Some docs may see one or two or three patients per year with polycythemia vera and not really have a kind of a finger on the pulse of what's going on in the field. And so I always encourage patients to go get a second opinion from a center that specializes in the treatment of the NPNs or polycythemia vera. That way they can, at a minimum, you go and you get the same information and you're reassured that you're on the right track. And sometimes there may be something there that's subtle that may not have been picked up on that could change the way you think about your disease or the way we go about treating your disease. I can't overemphasize the importance of getting a second opinion from an NPN specialist. We talked a whole lot more to Dr. Gerds about treatment options, communication, and lots of other things. But as you know well by now, you can find those topics and more in the full episode. Wow, this was a sprint. It was, but it felt good to do a recap. We learned so much from these incredible guests, and doing this episode has very genuinely made me want to go back and re-listen to the full episodes completely again. And to think, as PV investigators, we really started out knowing nothing. But now I feel like I could really connect with someone I meet with PV or talk shop with some PV people at a conference. And I bet there's still a whole lot more to learn. Well, of course. Not only are science and treatment ever evolving, but everyone's lived experience is vastly different. Okay, we should keep doing this. Josh, we are. Oh, good. So 
Join us next time on the PV Pod Stories, Stories from, from the, the Marrow. Marrow, brought to you by Pharma Essentia. Thanks, Pharma Essentia.